Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John Kaplan here with five-time CRO and author of the wildly successful book, the qualified sales leader, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you, brother? Good morning, Cap. I'm pretty excited about our guest today. Really yeah. amazing story. So happy yeah. for our listeners also. Me too, buddy. I'm uh, I'm really, really excited to have Dr. Tommy Watson. Uh, and Dr. Tommy is one of America's leading experts on turning <clears throat> transitions into triumphs. Um, he's considered a leading authority on resilience, change, motivation, and leadership. Uh, Dr. Watson inspires millions with the unique and charismatic way he articulates his rags to riches uh, success story. His life of resilience, hard work, and perseverance will inspire any audience. And uh, uh, Dr. Watson's hardships include... Uh, these are some tough ones, brother. So living with parents who were heroin addicts and shoplifters, uh, his mother uh, was arrested 11 times during his first year of birth, uh, living in 30 different locations by the time he finished high school and being homeless when he was recruited as one of the top football players in the nation. Um, this astonishing journey provides the foundation for the powerful principles uh, Dr. Watson teaches today to individuals and organizations. Uh, Dr. Tommy attributes his success to the power of resilience. Despite the hardships and um, learning disabilities, his amazing resilience has led him towards academic and professional excellence. He's obtained four college degrees, including a doctor of education and leadership with an emphasis on organizational change. And an equally impressive is his winning McDonald's Corporation's prestigious leadership award bestowed on top leaders in management. Dr. Tommy has authored two great books. I've read them both. They're outstanding. Uh, one is uh, A Face of Courage, the Tommy Watson story, which I believe, uh, Dr. Tommy, I'll, I'll get your confirmation in just a second. I believe they're making a, a, a movie out of that. And another great one for our listeners is The Resilience of Champions, Secret Habits of Highly Resilient Individuals and Organizations. Dr. Tommy, welcome, and thank you so much for being John, with us. John, who is that guy you're talking about there? Who <laughs> <laughs> that guy know, <laughs> How you guys doing this morning? Really, doing really fantastic. Good, so glad to have you on and hear your story. It is a pleasure and honor to be with Jay and Jay this morning. Jay and Jay. Jay. I love Jay. you. So, so Dr. Tommy, um, you obviously it's, it's one of your story is one of the most powerful stories of, um, 
resilience that that I've ever heard. And we got introduced to you by a common friend and um, read your book and and just was amazed at um, just, you know, what you've overcome. And I think what I'd like to do is like just kind of start with a is a definition. I mean, we Johnny Mac, we have we've had several guests on over the last year talk about resilience and and every story has just been outstanding. Dr. Tommy, start with us by telling us kind of like, how do you define resilience? And then we'll get into a little bit of your background and how, yes, how you came to that definition. That's a great question. I really appreciate you guys having me on this amazing podcast as well and, and the work you guys are doing. You know, resiliency, uh, John and John, is, is really about just bouncing back from adversity because no matter what area of life you come from or what you do, we're always going to face some challenges when it comes to just life. Life is going to throw things at us and we got to be able to bounce back. But I think oftentimes people look at resiliency as simply surviving. That's an aspect of it. But resiliency is really about bouncing back and thriving. So it's asking the questions, what am I learning from these obstacles? Because most of the time we go through obstacles and just simply go through and say, wow, I survived. I made it out of there. We don't reflect back and say, okay, what, what did I learn from that experience? So if it ever comes to me again, I have some things I can build off of. Or if I come across someone else who's been or, or going through a similar situation, I can give them some nuggets to help them overcome those obstacles. That's what resiliency is really about. It's not necessarily just about making it through by the skin of your teeth, but it's really about how do I bounce back from that and thrive and really help others to do the same thing as well. Yeah, and I struggled a little bit in the in the intro with just kind of listing those obstacles, um, and I didn't want to trivialize them by just kind of listing them that way. So, so uh, apologies if if it came off like that at all. Would yeah. you, would you just kind of share with us a little bit of the background of, um, you know how how you how you kind of came to who you are and, and, uh, and, and what you do and why you do it. Yeah. Again, uh, I appreciate what you shared. I mean, it was, it was a great intro. Uh, you know, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And as you mentioned, my mother and father were drug addicts and shoplifters. So uh, they never worked jobs. My mother and father were always going out to stores, stealing things. And their number one priority when they got money was to take care of their drug habit. So <clears throat> as a kid growing up, we spent a lot of time homeless. Um, bounce around from place to place to place. And by the time I finished high school, my parents were actually arrested 121 times. So mm -hmm. I tell people there's a difference between growing up in this country uh, dealing with poverty versus growing up homeless. You know, so you know, as a kid, we spent a lot of time in motel rooms, foster homes, crisis centers. I have six siblings. We've never all lived together growing up as kids because we're always in different foster homes and different places. Matter of fact, I met my oldest brother by pure coincidence in a foster home in second grade. Um, went to numerous schools, lived with my grandmother several times, um, had a learning disability. Many of my teachers didn't believe in me. I didn't believe in myself. Um, and, and, you know, th things were pretty tough. But I would say that the turning point came for me, John, when I was in third grade. In the uh, 1980s, when the Crips and Bloods were being run out of L.A., they migrated to Denver, Colorado. And of course, being a young person going through all the stuff that I was going through, I was looking for something to grab a hold of, you know, to, cat, to latch on to. And uh, the gangs looked very, very appealing. 
And my aunt that I was living with at the time, she was pretty smart. She got me involved in basketball. So basketball became a saving grace for me and really helped me begin. This is really, this is really critical because people often ask, how did I make it out of that? Basketball and sports gave me a chance to begin to dream beyond my circumstances because all the statistics in my neighborhood were telling me I was going to be the next gang member, uh, person to die early because of, you know, gang violence, drugs, um, penitentiary. And then that one statistic of sports was telling me that I have a chance to be the one or few to make it out to go to professional sports or even go to collegiate sports. So I held on to that dream and that dream allowed me to see the there that was there when there was nothing there, but me there in some of the most dire circumstances um, by seventh grade, you know, went on and uh, we got kicked out of our house in front of all of our friends. Um, all of our stuff was thrown into the front yard and we moved into our seventh motel room where there was actually nine of us who lived in one room, 60 adults with drug addicts. And at that time I continued to play sports. So you start talking about how sports kind of shaped me and gave me a vision, something to hold on to. I was walking almost seven miles from the motel room to this recreation center in downtown Denver um, every day to stay involved in sports. I ended up running to a coach who came into the inner cities of Denver who talked to me and my comrades about an opportunity to go out to this private suburban high school. And I remember getting very excited, but also knew out of all the guys on the team, I was probably going to be the one who wouldn't get the parental support to go out to the school. So I just decided not to tell my parents. And I said, I'll, I'll just see if I get in. I took the test, luckily got in. But while living in that motel room, I went on to win the, the uh, uh, basketball champ of my school, became the basketball champ of my school, wrestling champ of my school, got on the honor roll for the very first time ever while living in this motel room. And then it won an award that was given to a handful of kids in the entire state of Colorado, the Colorado Citizenship Award, while living in this motel room. Uh, so we start talking about resiliency. That resiliency starts to begin to build right there. Well, the end of my eighth grade year of school, John and John, my mother and father ended up going back to prison again. And now my brother and little brother and sister and I had to go move my uh, other grandmother who came out of retirement to take care of us and moved us into the heart of our neighborhood, which was now being called Little Compton now because of all the activity with the gangs that was taking place there. It was her wish that I go out to this high school and do well every morning. So every morning, starting at 6.30 in the morning, I took three city buses one way to high school every day. I did that. On the way back, I would get off the bus, um, probably back to my neighborhood between 8 and 10 o'clock at night when sports was over with. By my junior year of high school, my grandmother had developed Alzheimer's disease. Now I had to be placed into a nursing home. My mom comes out of prison no longer doing drugs, but she couldn't find a job. So she turned to selling drugs to take care of us. And in the middle of my senior foot, senior football uh, uh, season, my senior year, while being recruited as one of the top football players in the nation, I get to call at school. My mom is bust for selling drugs and goes back to prison again. Find myself homeless. Uh, a friend of family lets me come sleep on his floor for the remainder of my senior year of high school with the understanding that once I graduated, which I barely, barely graduated, I had to uh, really kind of go out on my own. So I left Denver, Colorado nearly 30 years ago. All I had was a trunk. My mom was in prison. My dad was in prison. My older brother was in prison. My grandmother was my last legal guardian was in a nursing home. My oldest brother was back in Denver involved in gangs. My older sister was back there on crack cocaine. My second older sister was in foster care in Iowa. And between my junior and senior year of high school, I lived in five different locations. I went to the University of Minnesota and had high expectations going to the NFL. And end up getting a back injury and had to turn to education to be my saving grace. And I uh, went on, got four degrees and um, became a school principal and now doing entrepreneurial uh, work around the country, in particular in the area of resiliency. So um, I, I thank God every day for this journey. 
And um, man, this is blessing just to be able to sit here and, and share these nuggets with your audience, which I'm very, very excited to do. Well, Dr. So Tommy, Dr. Watson, I, uh, you know, you uh, can we go back to when you said that sports gave you a dream and that yeah. dream yeah. made you believe that you could have a way out? Yeah. yeah. What was it that with sports that told you that you had an opportunity or made you dream? Was yeah. it a coach? Was it a role model? Was it a friend that told you, hey, you have some talent here and this could be a way for you to get out? Yeah, that's a great question, John. You know, I, I was actually a horrible basketball player when I first started out. I was very awkward, you know, didn't know what I was doing. But what helped me was I was constantly seeing the Denver Bronco football players on television who look like me. And I was hearing some of their stories about some of them coming from similar environments. I was saying, wow, they did it. I can do the same thing. And then it was great to have those coaches, once they got a chance to see me buy into the programming, to start laying out the blueprint in terms of what I needed to do to get there. You know, my coaches would often tell me I had to be a hard worker. You know, I wasn't a naturally gifted athlete, so I had to work really hard to, to learn the game of basketball as well as football. And I bought into what they were saying. And, you know, early on, John, it was a matter of buying into the dream that my coaches had for me because I right. didn't have that dream all the time. Mm -hmm. So they had a dream for me. And then once I was able to grab a hold of it, now I said, hey, I can see me getting there. I can see me doing some things differently. But having those visuals of those Denver Bronco players who look like me coming from different uh, same, similar environments was very, very critical. And then having the guidance of those coaches to say, hey, you can do it, but you're, here's the blueprint in terms of what you need to do to execute and, and, and get yourself to that place. Though. Great question. And some of those coaches – from what I know, um, they understand what you're facing outside the basketball court. So they try to keep you after school in yeah. the basketball court as long as they possibly yeah. can yeah. so they can keep you out of trouble outside the court. Is that the same? Is that the environment you were in also? You know, my, my high school football coach knew exactly where we were coming from. Um, and, you know, I was at this predominantly white high school, very fluent high school where um, a lot of the sports figures were sitting there, um, uh, kids too, and very affluent high school. And we were coming in from the inner cities. And one of the things I really credit my coaches and the uh, number of the teachers at the school, Mullen High School in Denver, Colorado, for doing was um, they made they allowed us to play sports or practices for sports to take place later on in the evening time. So after school, we did study hall at school because they knew going back home to our environment, it was a matter of survival. There was no... There was no right. study place. They also allowed us to eat with the brothers on campus. So we would go and eat with the brothers who were, you know, uh, uh, priests and stuff like that. So they made a lot of great accommodations to allow us to be successful in that environment. And that's what we do as leaders and as whether it be educators or a corporate environment, we make those adjustments so that people can be successful in those environments. So my, uh, I, I credit my coaches tremendously, my teachers tremendously, and also at home, you know, my grandmother didn't know what she was doing. She was kind of old school grandmother, but she loved on us. Uh, my grandmother made a lot of sacrifices for me and my younger brother, my younger sister to come into her house, you know, when we needed her and, you know, just do the things that she needed to do to provide just a, a roof of our house. I mean, over our heads during those times and just, you know, some element of stability. Yeah. yeah. And then as humans, you know, we, we always, we're always going to face pain, uncertainty, and we're going to constantly have to work on ourselves. And what you pointed out earlier is that you took learnings from 
the adversity that you faced. But there had to be a moment when you realized, hey, I got to start learning from some of these adverse situations and to become a better person and to do the constant work. When do you think that was? How early was that? You know what, John, it was it was early as third grade um, because I went through so much stuff by the time I was in third grade. I mean, you're talking about numerous. I mean, my mother was arrested 11 times in the first year I was born, you know, so you're talking about numerous foster homes. There were so many things I was exposed to as a young kid that I had to try to figure out early enough to say, if I don't get this, this is going to be a matter of survival. This is this is my life is going to be at stake. If I if I go down the route that my friends are going down and I'm seeing these guys dropping off like, you know, like nobody's business to, to drugs and alcohol and, and to death, I got to figure this thing out. So I hung my hat on sports. I said, this is the one thing right here has to work for me. There was no plan B. There was no plan B. I was going to right. the store every day as a third grader, every yeah. day. And again, I was a horrible basketball player, but I was in there every day working my butt off to try to figure the game out. But had I gone the other route of the gangs, there was no doubt about it because of my mindset. I'm an all-in kind of guy. So if I would have joined the gangs, there was no doubt about it. I was going to probably be dead or in jail within a very, very short period of time because I was, I'm was, i just that committed to things that I, I get involved in. I, I don't do things halfway. I'm, I'm, all, I'm either in or I'm not involved with it whatsoever. So thank God for sports, the coaches and my aunt Mildred at the time for getting me involved in sports. That was a game changer and begin to allow me to see what was happening in the neighborhood and start saying, I can't do that. I got to do something different. And keep in mind, I was also seeing my mother and father heavily addicted to drugs at home. So they were heroin addicts. We were watching that play out, you know, right before us every day, you know, with them being picked up and being shipped off to uh, prison or, or jail. Or, um, so we're seeing all these things on a day-to-day basis. So it wasn't always the mistakes that I was making as much as I was looking at the mistakes that other people were making around me and saying, I don't want that. Hey, hey, just to set the stage, um, what a statistical miracle you are. Um, there in the research that I've done and being involved in prison ministries and incarceration in the United States, uh, if you are a child of an incarcerated parent, there's an 82% probability, statistical probability uh, that actually um, the Department of Corrections around, you know, the State Department of Corrections, they actually use those formulas to build more prisons uh, in the United States. But there's an 82 percent probability that you would go to prison. And then once you go into prison, there's a 92 percent probability that you will stay in the system. Dr. Tommy, you are a statistical uh, miracle. Um, and I'm sure that you've I'm sure that you've contemplated that before Um, when you just think about, you know, the people around you, Johnny's been talking to you about like at what point or what have you that did you realize? Uh, But um, I just wanted to, you know, kind of let our listeners know that, that you are, you are absolutely a statistical miracle. I thank God. Thank God for being in that category of those other on the other side of those statistics. Absolutely. What I love about your story here in resilience and and folks, the the book, um, uh, I just want to reference this again. I, I the book was fantastic for me. The resilience of champions: secret habits of highly resilient individuals and organizations. I picked out this one quote, and you actually do a lot of you've done a lot of study and research on the topic of. 
resilience. And in your book, you, uh, I quote here, later on as the brain, as brain research became more popular, um, uh, Berntro and Longhurst in a 2005 study, they studied the resilient brain and found that resilience is universal across all cultures and is a natural part of our human DNA. Yeah. In fact, the researchers found that the brain was in the business of overcoming risks and threats. Yes. The built-in human survival instincts that we have long associated with fight or flight are also referred to as human resilience. Resilience is an innate human trait. Yes. Um, and so so I think the the message that I took away from it is, is that we're all built with the capability to be resilient. You have to learn how to tap into it. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you found in the research and, and, and how you're teaching people to tap into their own capability to be resilient? Absolutely. You know, there's three things that people need. In particular, when you start talking about leaders and organizations need to be resilient. The first thing, whether it be an individual or organization, you have to have hope. If you have to believe that there is, there is something on the other side of this that's going to benefit me if I just continue to put my head down and just keep going, because when you, when you go through a situation where you don't have hope, the chances of you giving up become very, very significant. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you start talking about some of the, um, the, the pieces around brain research, I often tell people, you know, as we sit here today, listening, we have survived 100% of the challenges that we faced. The fact that we're here says you're a survivor, mm. we're an overcomer. So you've survived 100% of the things that you probably didn't think that you could possibly ever get through. You've made it out on the other side. Now the question becomes, what happened? What did I learn from the situation to help me make it out on the other side? And what will I do differently if I ever find myself in the same situation or help someone else and, and give them a nugget that can, they can have differently as well? So when we talk about hope, there's two aspects to hope that people need to be aware of, okay? There's a saying that says, um, where there's a will, there's a way. So the first aspect of hope is willpower. So there has to be something internally, you know, that goes on in you that wants to move forward. But the second thing that people often don't know about and, and don't tap into is way power. So that's the mentoring ship. That's the blueprint because willpower gets you in the game, but way power keeps you in the game. So when you find those individuals who have been there, done that, start listening to their stories, start figuring out how they did it, um, connecting with other individuals who can give you the game as well. The second thing is we have to have leaders who can adjust to change because change is constantly happening in our society and not fear it, but embrace it and welcome it and, and adjust to it as it comes along. And then the, the last piece is sometimes when we're going through challenging times, it's very, very easy to start focusing on all the things that are going wrong. Sometimes in the midst of, of challenges and changes, and in particular, I'll tell you this, when I was writing this book, I was going through a divorce. I was working on my doctorate. I was doing all these other things. And I remember writing this chapter on shining the spotlight, spot, shining the spotlight. And what that's about is sometimes in the midst of a lot of chaos, you have to hone in on the one thing that's going right. Find one thing that's going right and hold on to it. You know, Dr. Victor, um, Franco was in the concentration camps. He mm -hmm. talked about one of the things that kept him going in the concentration camps was the visual he had of someday telling other people about his experience 
of being in those concentration camps, you know, and oftentimes when we look at the research on a lot of individuals who were made it out of the concentration camps, the thing that we find very in common, most of them, they had hope that there was going to be a brighter day, a brighter future to come. And that's one of the things that we got to have when you start talking about resiliency, because again, if you don't feel that there's a, there's a, a, a brighter outcome on the other side, why go forward? And, and I'll even drop this on you as well. One of the, the challenges we're facing around the nation with a lot of our young people, in particular in inner cities, and now I'll say in suburban areas as well, is a lot of our young people don't see themselves living long. So when I don't see myself living long, it's very, very easy for me to take your life or to damage your possessions or, or, or take your possessions and do damage to you know, your surroundings and other things. We got to give our young people a better sense of hope and that there's a brighter day out there for them for tomorrow as well. I've heard you say this in some of your um, writings and some of your teachings, your why has to be bigger than your why not. How'd you come up with that? Yeah. You know, it goes back to what I was saying before about having a dream bigger than your circumstances. Because again, if you're going to move and accomplish a goal, every, a, a lot of things in us tell us to be comfortable. Even when we're in comfortable misery. We, we're, it tells us it's okay to stay the same. But oftentimes when it comes to setting goals, you have to come up with a goal that's going to be a lot bigger than your reason for staying and being the same. So if your goal isn't big enough or pulling you to a place where you're, you're going after it, you should come up with another goal, something that's going to drive you. So again, when you come up with a goal and you say, you know what, my reason for getting over there is so much more significant for me staying here then you're in that place where your why has become bigger than your why not. Because you're going to have people who are going to say, well, why are you going after that goal? What, what are you doing that for? You know, you know, stay here, you know? So you have, to, you have to have in your mind that there's a reason for me to get over here and I'm not going to stay here no matter what's going on. Yeah, Dr. Watson, on that point, you know, I read that the more you researched, the more you learned how we were all relatively the same in our stride for life, <laughs> really becomes a matter of will and yeah. purpose. So purpose being that goal you just discussed. Do you think that purpose becomes comes before will or will becomes be, before purpose? That's a, that's a great question, John. You know, I think, I think there has to be a will coming first because there has to be, my grandmother used to tell us all the time, she'd say, boy, you got to have some want to about yourself. You got to have some get up and go. So you, you got to get up. You got to go. You got to take steps before you step into your purpose. Because, again, it's hard to find that route in which is going to take you to the next level if you're not willing to put forth some effort, you know, from your from yourself. Though. So I think everything starts with us having that willpower first. We got to have the element of want to. That want to comes from thinking and believing that, OK, if I take this first step, something good is for me on the other side. In fact, my doctoral research was around motivation. And that's one of the primary things that has to be in place for a person to be motivated. They have to believe that if I take this first step, something good is going to help happen for me. If I do what the employer is telling me to do, I should be rewarded in the way that it's going to benefit me though. When people become um, unmotivated and don't want to work in an environment, you'll see a disconnect between what they have been promised as an incentive and connected to their, their, their work abilities. So whatever you're telling people their work abilities are, they should be connected to the promises that have been made as well. I think one of the things that the I other part say, of 
Oh, go ahead, Johnny. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. I, th- I think one of the things that I hear you saying is, and for our listeners, whether you're in this situation or if you're a leader, if you're leading people and they're in this situation, in in Victor Frankl's book that you referenced, it's a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. Um, I, I was amazed that like he could see himself in the future. And that became, he was focused on the outcome and he was focused on the why and the what and the how they became easier for him, easier, not easy, but they became easier for him. And I've often thought about this in my own circumstances. And then when I've been leading individuals, when people can't see themselves in the future, they get really out of sorts. So if you're, if you're a leader right now and you're dealing with somebody that can't see themselves in the future of the company, that can't see themselves successful in the role that they're in, they're going to change their circumstances. It's part of the human condition. It's part of human nature. When you yourself, if you're sitting there this year, as you're beginning the year and planning and, and, and if you can't see yourself successful in that territory or successful in that, whatever, uh, position that you have, it's part of the human condition to change your circumstances. So I just, we're built that way. Like when we can't see ourselves in the future, we're built to get a little wonky. Some people do it very productively and other people do it very unproductively. So, so is that something that you found in the research as well? You you hit it right on the head. And you know, when when people are at that place where they, there's, there's kind of a progression and sports coaches do this pretty well when it comes to motivation. The anchor of all motivation is you have to, I call it the three V's of motivation. Your first V is values. You have to connect with what people value. See, what, what, what motivates me may be totally different from what motivates the two of you. So I have to connect and really spend some time in terms of what's your goals, what's your dreams, what gets you going? Because as leaders, if you don't do that and you simply assume that, what motivates me should motivate you. I've missed the whole mark. Yeah. So now that we move to vision, which is the second step, the vision is totally off because now I'm pushing a vision on you that you don't necessarily buy into. Mm. But if we go back to values, I can learn your values. Now I got your buy-in. Now we can create a mutual vision that's going to work for the two of us and move us forward in, in the right way. And lastly, the other V is verbal affirmations, where I become your cheerleader. See, great coaches will make sure that they, they know your values. They're going to create a vision of excellence, and they're going to simply cheer you on come game day. They're going to cheer you on come game day because we've now put all the pieces in place to help you be successful. So as leaders, oftentimes leaders, we will get to the place where we'll give them a little bit of the verbal affirmations. We'll talk about the vision, but we won't spend a lot of time in the first V, finding out the values. Because finding out the values means I have to dig and spend some time with you and create a relationship with you. That's one of the areas that we fall short at when it comes to corporations and organizations. And oftentimes we want to simply just get things going, get people going in a direction, but that's the foundation of everything. I need to spend some time, which I need to find out about your, your, um, your family. You know, when I was a principal, actually when I was a principal and I worked at McDonald's corporation as well, I go back to McDonald's corporation. When I, when I first started with McDonald's corporation, that was, those were things that I did you know, pretty easily because of sports. So often when I was moving a restaurant, um, most of my staff wanted to transfer restaurants with me and the corporate office had to come in and tell them, Hey, you can't follow 
this assistant manager to this, this new restaurant, which was all the way on the other side of town, because I talked to him about their goals, their dreams, finishing school, all those different things, not just what we're going to do in terms of meeting goals here in the company today, but let's talk about what, what your personal goals, dreams are. And then when I was a principal, um, I had to find out what the goals and dreams of, and what were the things that were valuable to my, to my staff. And most of my teachers valued their family time and they valued the time with their students. So I never interrupted. I rarely ever interrupted their time with their students. And when they had something going with their families, I would come, come and take over a classroom just so they can go off and take care of their families. And they appreciated that. So again, if you, as a leader, if you don't know what it is that your folks value, you're missing a great opportunity. Yeah. Dr. Watson, I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, when things are going wrong and you're looking for the one thing that's going right. I've always felt like as humans, we have this doctor no in our head. Yeah. Like if I want to go on a run or a bike ride or I want to do something like that, there's always somebody in my head that says, well, you know, you really could just stay on the couch. You could read a book. You could watch a movie. You could do nothing. You know, that that run or that ride or whatever you want to do, that could wait till later, you know. And I think that, you know, I even tell my kids, as old as I am, this doctor no is still in my head. And I got to always tell them to shut up. Uh -huh. And I have to take that to your earlier point. I have to take that first move. Uh -huh. And when I make that first move, all of a sudden I'm on my way. And now I achieve something. And I look back and say, I don't know why I was so negative Yes. about the fact that I might not be able to accomplish something. Yeah. So actually in those little situations, even going on a run or going on a bike ride, I used to come down, get dressed in my clothes, come down in the living room and my That's kids right. would go, Oh, you're going on a run. And I was like, <laughs> I guess so. Because now what I'm going to tell them, I'm not going to go back up and, and change. Right. That's so right. I think that, a lot of people don't understand that that's innate in all of us. There's this doctor no inside of us that we all have to uh, overcome. It's he surrounds us. Yes, absolutely. And you, you're so right about that, John. That's a great example. You know, one of the things that I've been doing a lot as I become an adult, um, I engage in a lot of morning meditation. I, I encourage people to engage in morning meditation. Think about your goals and dreams you want to accomplish in a day. See yourself doing it. And, I think we're, we're all athletes. One of the things we did in sports was we did what was called positive men, mental imagery. We would go through all of our, our plays in a dark room, think about them and see only positive outcomes before the game started. Now the challenge in sports is the other guy on the other team is doing the same thing. So now it becomes a matter of willpower, not just <laughs> the positive imagery, but we as individuals, what we're up against is we're battling ourselves. So in the morning time, if we can get to a place where we can start seeing, I, I keep using the phrase, being able to see the there that's there when there was no one else there but you there. That's mm. faith. So when you're in that room, you have to be able to look at that floor and see the there that is there when there's nothing else there but you there when it comes to achieving your goals. When you get to that place, because the reality is all success happens twice. It happened mentally first. And then it manifests itself in the, in the natural once we started doing it. Mm. So we got to get ourselves to the place. And even in the negative, most of the negative things happened to us. It started here first and then it manifests itself out here. So we got to get ourselves trained to where we're kicking Dr. No or hearing less and less of his voice and hearing yes. more Dr. Yes 
and how it's going to turn out for us positive because we're we're grooming our society. Look at our commercials. Our commercials are, are geared to see us to get geared to see, get us to see problems first, and then they offer some type of solution to us, you know, by calling or going to the website at the end. Though, so we got to get to a place where we're, we're listening to Doctor Yes first. Doctor Yes says you can do it. You don't have to fall apart. Things don't have to be miserable. And if they do go that route, it was meant. And then the question becomes, what am I learning from the situation? Yes. Yes. Now you obtained, uh, talk a little bit about your education. You, you obtained four college degrees, including a doctor of education and leadership. And, and you picked that. It seems like to me, you picked that goal. If I want to become a doctorate leadership, why did, why did you decide on that? You know, when I, when I look back over my life, John, there, there was a lot of um, I tell people I, I went into sports because that was the the, the thing that was available to me. No one in my neighborhood it was either gangs or sports. So I chose sports. But I found over the years that I was a person who had a lot of influence, with a lot of people in my neighborhood. You know, I was always been a natural motivator. So when I got into the school system, I had a bachelor's degree, but I knew that um, I wanted to I didn't want any thing to stop me from going, you know, from principal to superintendent or whatever position I was going to apply for. So I, I went for the maximum level of education. Even though I was a principal, people were saying, hey, you don't have to have a doctor. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to go get it anyhow. And then it became very, very personal to say, you know what, I'm going to be the, I'm, I'm this kid who's from five points, Denver, Colorado, who had a learning disability, who came from all this stuff. I got to do this for some of the other folks out there who may be striving for the same things. You know, I was just speaking to, I have a, a little men, mentee that I just met here this weekend and his mom, you know, this young man struggling and um, his mom was telling me about some of the struggles. And in the midst of our conversation, he says, I want to be a doctor too. I said, that's what I'm talking about. You can do it. So I said, we're going to start calling you doctor. We're going to start calling you doctor. As a fifth grader, your, your title is now going to become doctor. You're you know? giving him a vision. Absolutely. So, the, so it became a goal that was personal and professional in the beginning but then it grew to something that's even far bigger than me, John, you know, and not that I needed a title or anything like that to boost myself up, but it opens up doors for other people to be inspired in terms of what they can accomplish and achieve as well. Yeah. Right. Cause I think in some ways you were saying I need it for me, but I also need it to prove to other people that have been in my situation that it is achievable. I yeah. did it. You can do it. Yes. And I'll give you this example of how, being homeless is very different to living in poverty. So when we were in second grade, well, in seventh grade, we got kicked out of this house I told you guys about. Um, we ended up in this motel room. The school didn't have any address for us, no telephone number. My friends didn't know where we lived at. We lived in Commerce City, which is outside of Denver. Um, we weren't eating. The only times we ate was at school for breakfast and for lunch. Um, it, was, it was miserable. My parents, there was, there was no government support. Now, all my friends who lived in the projects and were on um, welfare, and not to minimize it at all, but they were coming from single-parent households where the government, they were getting something on a regular basis. They had stability in their lives. We didn't have mm-hmm. any of that. And then in second grade, we were living in another motel room. I remember we returned to the motel room after a day of being out, and my dad went to put the key in the door, and the door wouldn't open up. And uh, my dad turned around and looked at the owner and said, we can't get in the room. And the owner said, you're not getting in the room. And they started going back and forth. And he finally said, get out of here before I call the police. And John, we had to walk away from that motel room. I was in second grade. Everything we owned was behind that door. 
Mm. Back in the car, go down the street to the next motel room as though nothing had ever happened, start life all over again. We couldn't call the police or anything else. It was start life all over again. That's the difference between living in America and dealing with homelessness versus dealing with poverty in America. I mean, even here in Charlotte, we got about 3,300 uh, students and families that are living in motel rooms here in our city. You know, so those families and kids need to know that you can make it out of that situation. Today might not, not, may not be the day that you want it to be, but if you do certain things, you can change the future for yourself and, and for your generations to come after that. Yeah. So there's a theme uh, in, in it doesn't surprise me that you went on to study leadership and in your book, uh, The Resilience of Champions, you reference the New York Times bestselling author, Jim Collins. Um, in his book, uh, Great by Choice, he states, and I'm quoting you in your book, thriving in uncertainty that great leaders in challenging times don't merely succeed, but create, don't merely survive, but prevail, don't merely succeed, but thrive. Um, and he went on to profess that looking at individuals and organizations in extreme moments, in extreme moments that you're describing a ton of extreme moments here will tell you more about them than examining them in tranquil, safe, and predictable moments. And it's during the challenges that we see, during these challenges that we see what makes individuals different and great. So yeah. you quoted that in your book. And as we hear your stories, it's, it, it, it kind of is a theme in some of the, the leadership principles. So speak to some of our audience out there that, you know, that are um, uh, that are leaders themselves, how to tap into your own uh, memory of that, if you will, to, to really understand what kind of a leader you are, but also how to help others kind of tap into it. And it's this, it's this, this, this theme of thriving in uncertainty. Uncertainty is not bad. Challenges are not bad. You've got the opportunity for growth and, and possibility. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? And without me saying it, which might sound trivial, but like you studied it. Yeah. You know, and I'll go back to those three V's again. One of the things that I see oftentimes when I work with leaders, John, is that uh, many leaders have forgotten their whys. They've gotten in positions and begin to chase the money. The money can only take you so far in terms of satisfaction. At some point in time, you're going to kind of hit this wall and it's not going to be a great motivator for you in, in, in you know, to go beyond that. So what I tell leaders is before you can lead a great company, a great team, you have to re lead a great individual starting with yeah. you. Yeah. So what's your values? What is it that you say that you will not compromise? What's important to you? What's your goals, your dreams? And then you can start tapping into your employees and what it is that drives them. What's your vision of excellence for yourself and for your department? You can't get your employees to buy into a vision of excellence if you don't have one that you genuinely believe in. And then how do you cheer your own self on? Because as leaders, I'm sure people have heard this a thousand times, leading is not often, you know, fun. You're going to be by yourself sometimes. You have to make some tough decisions. So what's that cheerleader in you going to be telling you during that time? And again, it's in these moments because you know, what we hear oftentimes in sports is the word process. So, you know, people like to quote that, hey, the trust the process, trust the process. The process is not easy, John. However, 
And the process is where you do your learning. So mm. people often think that success and failure at opposite ends of the, of the spectrum, success and failure are a circle. You need the valleys in order to get to the mountains. You need the, the valleys in order to stay humble. You need the mountains to be able to share what's worked, your lessons learned, and then you go back in the valley again to do some growing. So success and uh, failure are a circle. So embrace that. When you're in the valley, that's the best time to become a student. We should never be on the top of the mountain forever. If you're at the top of the mountain forever, you're in the wrong environment. You should be looking to go into the valley to do some learning. You know, when we learn, we grow. And what we mm -hmm. focus on grows as well. And we should constantly be setting big goals for ourselves, seeing ourselves achieving those goals now. You know, I like to tell people um, the whole concept of now faith from the scripture means for us to be able to see it now. One of the most common um, principles that you'll find in most successful people is most successful people already seen themselves attaining their goal well before they ever attained it. Now I'm in the movie industry now because you mentioned the movie piece. I'm, I'm doing a, um, a movie about my story, but one of the things uh, scientists did a, a, a study on the brains of actors and they hooked up MRI machines to the brains of actors and, and get this, what they found when the actors were in character their brains actually changed. They became someone else. That's what happens to us. We set goals and see ourselves already there versus trying to get there. So I often tell people, don't work towards a goal, work from your goal. Mm. Because working towards your goal is you're hoping you get there. The person working from their goal already sees themselves there. And they're simply taking the back steps to do the backwards design to ensure and fill in the gap. So there's a big difference between working towards your goal and working from your goal. If you're going to obtain your goals in the way that most successful people do, you got to see yourself already there. You got to see yourself already achieving. You got to see, you got to do what uh, Stephen Covey says, start with the end in mind. So when you're starting, you're already seeing the, end, the finish line. I've already experienced the finish line. Take yourself there to see what it feels like. Who's with you? You know, what does it mean to accomplish that goal? And, and, and really just on a day-to-day -day basis and start with your meditation, seeing yourself there and work from your goal and not towards your goal. Yeah. And you can see I get really excited about Chill this. bumps. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, I love it. Chill bumps. It. Hey, I want to go back to two things you said. You know, one is you said that a lot of leaders have forgotten the why. Yeah. And then earlier you had spoken about hope and that there were two elements of hope. The first element of hope was where there's a will, there's a way. And the second one you said is then you have the way power. Yes. So then if you're a leader that has not given people the why, then you can't give them hope. And then right. you can't give them the way power. That's right. Right? Yes. You, it's all linked together again. Yes. And John, it's, it's funny you said that because one of the things we've been experiencing since post-COVID is this great resignation. All these yes. companies saying, wow, why, why are all these people leaving? There's never been a foundation to really give people authentic hope because we have not spent enough time finding out what it is that they want. What is their why? What is it that they value? And then intertwining that into the company's values, the company's mission, the company's vision. So we have all these people who have been working just because we have told them to work that we're going to give them a paycheck. 
And now post-COVID, they spend two years finding out what really works for them and what they're not going to um, um, give into in a workplace anymore. So they leave. So during COVID, COVID, what took place was the great realization. People realized they had options. There are a lot of people out there who became entrepreneurs. They said, I'm not going to find them in the workplace. I'm going to create it for myself. But you hit it on the head, though. When corporations do not have that foundational piece, the why, what values, what person really values, you don't get commitment. You get compliance. Yes. What mm. takes place in a lot of our 100%. companies. You got people simply complying. And when the next best option comes along, like you mentioned before, uh, Cap, people are out of there. They're, they're gone. gone. Yeah, they're gone. There's no commitment to them. Yeah. None whatsoever. Hey, hey man, I'm, I'm uh, man, I got chill bumps, dude. I'm ready to rip the heads off chickens. That's a good expression. <laughs> it means I'm fired up. Oh, let's uh, go. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things I heard you say, and it really taps into what what Johnny's talking about too, is there's an old saying that says, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yes. Um, and then you just kind of reiterated something very powerful for me. The growth comes from the valley, not from the mountain. Yes. The growth comes from the valley. But what I'm noticing in life is the older you get, you don't want the valley. You're telling yourself you don't want the valley. And even some of the younger people that I talk to, they're they, they're trying to avoid challenges. They're trying to avoid the valleys. They're, they're really only looking for the mountains. And what I was really uh, emotionally connected to is what you said is when I think back on it, all the growth comes from coming out of the valley. So we shouldn't be afraid of the valley. We shouldn't. If you're in a valley right now, that, that's the learning opportunity because growth is right around the corner. That was very, very inspiring for me when you said that. And it's very true when I reflect on it in my own life and my own career. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that for our listeners. Yeah. And and John, you know, that's a great point. Now keep in mind, there are people in our society that benefit from you being scared from us being scared to go in the Valley. Yeah. To be afraid of the Valley. But like you said before, the Valley is where all the growth takes place. When you're on the, the, the mountain, that's where the teaching takes place. So now you're the teacher at the mountain. You're the student in the valley. And that's the cycle of life. When you're going through, you can't just be the teacher all the time because no one's pouring into you. It's in the, in the valley where people pour into us, where we become humble. And we get a chance to see opportunities that we may not have come across before because we're on top of the mountain. But when you're in the valley, you start thinking a little differently. And even, even in COVID, I mean, COVID has provided a great opportunity for a lot of companies. I think about our schools there were, for many, many years, we should have been working on making sure that every student in our school had access to technology. Well, we didn't do it. Yeah. COVID came around. We made that happen. So sometime in the Valley is when some of the greatest opportunities emerge and some of the best things take place. So I, I agree with you 110% there. Now, what, what also you have become masterful at is what we've been talking a lot about is kind of, leadership and, and, uh, leadership of yourself. And, but you've worked a lot on team collaboration and, and I, I gotta believe that goes back to your experience at McDonald's where like, even though you're hired into a leadership program, like 
you worked all the stations you were and you knew all of the roles. I think about like professional sports, like, you know, some of the some of the greatest uh, uh, professionals that I've seen are the ones that are so good because they know what everybody else is doing. Could you talk a little bit about what you've learned most about collaboration and team collaboration and and kind of what you're seeing in corporations right now. What are you speaking to companies about on this subject? Great. Uh, you know, now, now keep in mind, my my all-time favorite job ever in the whole wide world was working at McDonald's Corporation. I was reluctant to go there because I had a college degree. And I'm saying, what am I going to work at McDonald's? I have a college degree. I'm not going to work at McDonald's. And then when I learned about the leadership program, I said, okay, this might be an opportunity. It's funny though, when I first jumped into the leadership program at McDonald's, um, I was getting dinged for all these other things. I've always been a hard worker. So I would jump in and start helping out when I would see areas that need help. And McDonald's had a philosophy, though. Your job as a leader is to work through other people, not mm. to do all the work yourself. So they wanted me to jump in for three minutes. They had, a, they had a thing called three minutes. You jump in for three minutes, you help out where you can, and then you step back and take a look to see what's going on. Because when I was in the kitchen working with the folks who were making the sandwiches for longer than three minutes, the front counter was getting backed up. The drive-through was getting backed up. But as a leader, I couldn't see any of those things. So it was chaos up there. Yes. The area that I was focusing on was good, but I couldn't see the big picture of the organizations. So one of the biggest keys to leadership is being able to work through other people to get things done. Hmm. Also being able to work through other people to get things done meant I had to know my crew. I had to know my staff. I had to know who was good at what. So rather than jumping in and, and doing all these, you know, going into the kitchen, I had to be able to pull someone else and say, hey, you're good at it. I need you to go back there for a few minutes. Come on back up here, do these other things. But it goes to, once again, knowing your staff, spending time with your staff on the front end before you go into the valleys, because you're going to go into a valley within organizations. And if, you, and if people feel that you're invested in them, they are going to hang around. They're not going to just bail on you once things get tough. And what's happening right now, as I work with corporations, is people aren't committed to the organizations, so they're leaving. So I'll tell any leader out there, if you're at that place, put things on pause. You know, when I became a principal, one of the first things I did was I sat down with all my staff. We got into a circle, and I, I, we did listening circles. I had them tell me what was important to you, okay? What's the vision you would like to see for this organization in the next five or seven years. And we combined all that vision. We came up with one mission statement and we put them all over the school. So the staff were constantly reminded in terms of what we we're looking at doing. We began to go into the school and change out a lot of the, the uh, stuff that anything that signified that we were a second class school, we got rid of those things. So we began to shape and, and, and mold the school that was a very low income school into a first class school. But that only took place by me spending time with my people. As a leader, you got to spend time with your people because you can't just expect people to, to just go with you and stay with you out of compliance. They're only going to do it for so long. Mm, right. When you go into a place of commitment, commitment comes through relationships, the relationships. You got to get relationships going on. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about that because we had Mike Hayes on the podcast mm -hmm. who was commander of SEAL Team 2 for almost 20 years. Yeah. And one of the concepts he talked about was almost exactly what you said. He called it dynamic subordination, mm -hmm. where he is the leader. 
had to know his people so well yes. that he wasn't always the leader when they were on a mission. He right. had to know that Tommy could do something better than anybody else in the group. Mm-hmm. And then when they turn a corner, John could do something better than anybody else in the group. And at that moment, he wasn't the leader. He, he gave away his leadership to that right. person, but they all knew each other so well that there was this constant dynamic subordination as to who's the leader at any given moment. That's right. And that's what really makes a great leader to your point. Yes. And it's really working through other people to get things done because oftentimes people. So I, when I left McDonald's and won their leadership award, I went into the school system. Now keep in mind, I was never a print. I was never a teacher. I was never an assistant principal. I never worked at the district office. It was all based upon the leadership skills that I got from McDonald's. So when I was become a school principal, I simply implement, I was very, very honest with my staff. I said, I'm not a classroom teacher. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. My role is to put you in the best position possible for you to be the best you can be in your, in your position. So Mm. tell me, I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but we are going to create a vision, a mutual vision, and I'm going to keep you accountable going towards that vision every day. And they bought into that though. So as leaders, it's okay to, Admit when you don't know something. Humility is a great, great tool to bond and connect with your staff. You don't have to be Superman, Superwoman. It's okay to be humble and say, I, I just don't know. Help me understand. But it's okay to say that they do it better than you do. Absolutely. And yeah. you can learn from them. Absolutely. That's where the bonding creates and, and comes, you know, comes into play at. Yeah. One of my favorite um, principal stories about you, and it's such a great leadership moment, is um, you you bought executive furniture for the teachers. Like, could you talk a little bit about what you did, why you did it, and what the outcome was? I think it's a really cool message. You know, John, I, I went into the teacher's lounge, and I remember seeing all these fold-up chairs and everything when I went in there, and I was saying to myself, look, this doesn't look like a, a school of excellence. So I went and, and talked to a, um, an organization that actually had um, hotel liquidated um, furniture and I gave them the vision. And of course, you know, they want to help schools out and they gave us this beautiful executive tables and chairs. And so whenever you came into my conference room and my school, it looked like a, an executive conference room. Whenever you went to the mm-hmm. teacher's lounge, it looked like an executive lounge. And it's funny, the teachers start to buy into it. They said, we're going to paint the room. So they came in on the weekends and painted the room. Uh, we got new carpeting. They put in lights. So everybody began to buy into this vision of excellence once the vision was put in place. But again, I was letting the staff know that just because we were serving students who were in poverty didn't mean that we had to be a place of poverty. We were a first-class school serving first-class students, and we were first-class. But all that starts with a vision. So if your organization right now is going through some tough times, goes back to what's your vision? How are you going to get the folks around you to buy into the vision? You got to get their part. And it starts with what they, what they enjoy, what they're about, and get a mutual vision and move forward. Though, But every, vision is everything. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is uh, where there's no vision, the people perish. Mm. That's true of individuals. That's true of organizations. You got to get a mutual vision for everyone there. Or your company's not going to be around long. Or you're not going to be around long. Your department's not going to be around long. When you get buy-in, you get 
people who are committed. When you get strong army people, all you're doing is getting people to comply and they're going to bail. And I'll tell you over and over, we talked about this over and over again, the first chance they get to leave, they're out of there. They are. That's what we're seeing in this country all over again. Everywhere. People are just leaving. There's no commitment to the organization because we've become this place that it's just get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done. Results, results, results. Results are important, but you got to have relationships as well. See, high expectations is a combination of high relationships, high results. So you still push people towards results, but I'm also going to have a great relationship with you as well. And some of your best leaders are great at balancing those two. Yeah, and to your earlier point, you know, once you have a common vision with everybody, now one plus one equals three. Yes. Right? Yes. It becomes yes. much bigger than life. And now, in those moments, at least, I was lucky enough in a couple companies to be part of that. No one wants to leave. That's right. Because they want to be associated with That's right. this. That's right. They, don't, they almost feel guilty if they left, like, yes. I'm leaving a championship team. Why would I ever do that? And then That's people right. on the outside know what's going on in there. And they're like, well, wait a second. Yes. Why did you leave that company? Because... Yeah. This special things going on. That's right. And that's where you get the resilience of champions. That's what championship teams do. Um, that's what they're about. People buy into that and they, they want to be a part. Everybody, everyone wants to be a part of a winning organization. hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so, so many, so many golden nuggets here. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, hold on. Uh, I got one more. I got another question I'd like to ask. I could yeah. ask him questions all day though. Yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Watson, you worked with leaders at some of the world's, you know, most successful companies. Are there certain lessons that resonate with the leaders or are there certain things that they they need to work on if you just generalized the yeah. leaders that you've seen and worked with? You know, again, it goes back to that vision piece that a lot of them have just, you know, um have lost sight of the vision. I think we became um uh, a culture in a country that focused too much on results, uh, revenues, money. Uh, those things are important. However, we simply, we became in, um, a country where we're willing to drag people along. We're willing to lose people on the journey just to get the results. Being a leader is all about relationships. If you're going to be a great leader, you got to have great relationships. And you'll look at it over and over again. Those leaders who are most effective are people who invest their time and energy in learning who their folks are, spending time with them. You know, um, I was at an organization retreat here recently, and I talked about what, what are some of the rituals of your culture? You go to any sports team, whether it be from Little League to NFL or any other sports team, there are rituals that the team involves in, whether it be a saying or chants or things that they do afterwards or before the game. There are things that they do that bond them as human beings yes. before you get on the playing field. What are the things in your organization that are bonding your folks as human beings? What are you doing before work? What are you doing after work? What are you doing at lunchtime? What are the rituals? What are some of the things you, what, what is the culture that you're building of connectedness in your organization? Or are you simply allowing people to kind of come into an organization do their work and leave as individuals. You don't really have a team if that's the environment you're, you're, you're running. 
So one of the things that the leaders have to do is you got to create an environment where rituals became one that they're, 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 they're fun rituals and they're rituals that everyone buys into and that they want to um, uh, contribute and take part in. But you do these things on a regular basis. You can't just simply do the, um, the, 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 the happy hour once a year and expect people to be okay in the organization. People want to talk. Right. People want to get to know each other. As John mentioned in, in the first segment, we, we, people are natural beings. We want to connect with each other. We, we want to figure out if you're going through something, let me give you some ideas, how you can get through it. Let Share some ideas with me. That's the natural things that we do as human beings. Not creating this environment where, hey, when, when you fall down, we're all going to laugh at you and just hope that you don't ever get up. That's, that's, not a, that's not a very healthy environment to work in. Yeah. I used to always say that the litmus test for me and my people is I used to say to them to, to wonder if they really were intimate with their people is when that person that works for you goes home tonight, mm. they open up the door. What are they going to tell their spouse or their partner, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whatever it is? What are they going to tell them as to how it is to work at this company and how is it to work for you as a leader? And if yeah. you don't really know what they might say, yeah. you're not intimate with your people. Yeah. And John, that's a great example. You know, I, I even tell people, you know, imagine a leader as a leader, if you had a parrot on your, your shoulder every day, you know, a parrot repeats back what, what it hears every day. How would you feel when you got home? Would you feel motivated? I like that one. I'm going to steal that one, Dr. Watson. <laughs> That'll tell you about your leadership style in the organization. If you're telling that yes. parent, shut the hell up every day, it's Mike Cosmo, who you are as a, as a leader. Yes. You know, on this, on this, I love uh, that one. <laughs> Johnny, I'm, 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 uh, I texted with uh, Coach Mosley. Uh, over the weekend because I just finished Last Chance U basketball. Yeah. So Dr. Tommy, uh, Coach John Mosley uh, uh, is doing some incredible things in Los Angeles. And Johnny, I'm I'm going to do, it's already done in my mind, I'm going to do the connection. I could just see Dr. Tommy interacting with Coach Mosley and in, in oh, his yeah. program. There's he's a saying, firebrand. Oh, he's oh, unbelievable. Coach Mosley, have you met him, Dr. Watson? I, I have not, but I would you love have to check it, it oh, out. Boy. It's called Last Chance University he's, Basketball on wow. Netflix. He's special. Wow. He's taken a lot of these inner city kids yes. that really have no other place to go. Their only outcome is they got to make it in basketball. Yes. And a lot of them's come into the program. They're, they're head cases, you know, and doc and Mosley has to work with them and not only, and get them to gel as yes. a team not as a bunch of individuals throwing a basketball around. And he has it's, this it's saying. It's a real challenge, yeah. He has this saying, which sums up our conversation with you on this topic. Um, rules without relationships equals rebellion. Yes. Love rules that. without relationships equals rebellion. So for our listeners out there, if you're leading teams and you're, you're looking for conviction, but you're getting compliance, uh, and you know it instantly when you feel it. Just check that saying in rules without relationships equals rebellion. That's beautiful. Um, I got to tell you, we've covered so much ground here. We've covered resilience. We've covered leadership. We've co uh, covered teamwork. We've covered uh, neuroscience. Um, <laughs> just, I, I, you know, you're, 
your story was, I, I knew that it was inspiring from what our friend, our mutual friend had told me about you. Then I met you and I wanted you on the podcast even more. Then I read your book. And by the way, I just want to remind people, The Resilience of Champions, uh, Dr. Tommy Watson. Uh, he also has a, a, a book called The Face of Courage. A Face of Courage is really about your story. Yes. Um, and then The Resilience of Champions is really kind of what you did with your story and, and how it manifested itself into leadership principles. So folks, go out and get those books. They're great reads. They're great lessons. Um, Johnny, bring us home, brother. Well, Dr. Watson, I mean, first of all, I'm so glad to hear your story. And thank you for having me. And then what sports really meant to you and how that gave you a dream that gave you the will to believe that you had a purpose, a greater purpose on life. And I wish more kids could really, really be in that situation. You know, some of them, they get dragged down into the wrong direction, which you easily could have. That's the easy road. But you took the the path of more resistance, really, mm-hmm. and uh, found sports, found coaches, found the will, found the purpose. And uh, now what you're doing for companies and other individuals is just phenomenal. And you you can speak from a voice of experience, speak from a voice with a lot of scars on your back, right? So... People know that it's coming from your heart. It's coming from experience. It's coming from passion. And I'm so glad that you could share some of those stories with our audience. God bless you, man. You, you're you. a wonderful human being. You guys are amazing. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's just amazing to think of a, a young kid who went through all these scars and everything else is now in a position where I'm talking to people like uh, McDonald's Corporation and Minnesota Vikings, encouraging those folks to go on to be resilient. So you guys have been amazing. I appreciate you giving me a voice and an outlet to continue to share and empower those leaders out there. Go get it, leaders. Go get it. Go get it. Yeah. And for anybody who's like, you got SKOs, you got corporate meetings, you got um, obviously uh, Dr. Tommy Watson would be an incredible, um, would be an incredible speaker for that, uh, as you, as you were for us here today, how do we reach you, Dr. Tommy? How, do, how do people find you? Absolutely. The best way to contact me is go to my website, tawatson.com. All my contact information is there. would love to come out and support you and your organization, whether it be as a speaker, as a coach or as a consultant, because we all want to see, uh, organizations thrive and, and uh, survive and do better. So resiliency is and motivation are the key elements to any um, any organization. Doesn't matter what type of organization you're running, you got to have those two things in place, and that lays the foundation for that relationship building that we talked about there. So again, appreciate you guys, and look forward to reaching out to me. So great, and uh, so so thankful that you uh, that you spent time with us, and uh, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. You're uh, you're having a huge what you do matters, brother. So thank you for being with us. Appreciate that. And go to my website. I'm also even a rapper. I, I didn't get a chance to rap today, but maybe next time <laughs> I'm also rappers. Well, I'm not a good rapper, but I, I tipped it, John. You believe that? <laughs> That's awesome. We'd love to hear that. That's awesome. Now, Dr. Watson, do you have a, a charity you'd want to talk about? Dude, you know, one, of, one of the first organizations that I spoke to when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, um, about 10 years ago was I, I went to an organization called um, Shield Mentoring, Precious McCoy. She's uh, a mother and a husband. They, they work so hard in Greensboro to try to provide mentoring service to our young people who are going through it. I mean, they're in the projects up there in Greensboro, 
um, and really just going through it. So that's an organization that I supported over the years and I continue to support and just love her heart um, in terms of what she's doing and um, the impact that she's having on our community. Again, so that's the Shield Mentoring, Precious McCoy. Get out there and support her. And again, thank you all in advance for your support of that organization as well. Great. Dr. Tommy Watson, thank you again. And thanks to all our listeners for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 